Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we start, we have to let you know you can sign up to our 30-day free digital trial and get access to the New Scientist app. It's available on iOS and Android smartphone or tablet devices. The launch of our in-app audio feature means there has never been a better time to join New Scientist. Tune in for news, features, comment and more from the world's leading science and technology weekly. Listen to all available audio content from any one issue in one go for maximum convenience, whether you're on the move, relaxing, whatever you're doing. Sign up to our free trial today at newscientist.com slash 30 days. That's three zero days. Newscientist.com slash 30 days. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your co-host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. This week, we're joined by New Scientist Features Editor, Abby Beale, and science writer, Mike Marshall. Hello. Hey. Oh, this week, we've got an extraordinary story about a development in the growing of humanoid mini-brains which is as mad as it sounds. (laughs) We've also got a breakthrough in the long road to getting nuclear fusion working. We'll check in with what the latest pledges are for carbon emission reductions. And we've got a fascinating story about evolution in a synthetic organism. All of that and some important information on the role of ventilation in protecting against the spread of COVID. What a show. And remember, as a valued listener to the podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine, plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. Now, we start with the story of the highest pressure and the most extreme conditions created on Earth. And that's big news for nuclear fusion. We've spoken about this on the pod a few times. Uh, It's the long-awaited or even the fabled method of recreating the power of the sun on Earth. That's through fusing atomic nuclei rather than splitting them like in nuclear fission. Now, Abby, you've been reporting on this. Can you run us through the process? Yeah, so basically you have to recreate the conditions at the centre of the sun, but in a lab on Earth. So you have to make an incredibly hot and dense plasma and then get the nuclei in the plasma to fuse together. Once the nuclei fuse, you get huge amounts of energy, but it's incredibly hard to do because nuclei are positively charged, so they repel each other. The key problem is that 
at the moment it takes more energy going into the system than you get out of it. So what they need to do is get something called ignition. So that's the threshold where a kind of chain reaction begins and you start to get more energy out than you put in. And so you achieve thermonuclear burn. I do love that phrase, thermonuclear (laughs) burn. Um, uh, So this is what the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory at the National Ignition Facility in the US has now almost achieved. And I spoke to Jeremy Chittenden, the co-director of the Centre for Inertial Fusion Studies at Imperial College London, about the breakthrough and the significance of getting to the threshold of ignition. The only way in which we can really obtain large energy gain from the system and larger energy output than we have it put into the plasma in the first place is by triggering this ignition. It's not really being demonstrated in the laboratory before. And so because this is a key component of being able to make large energy yields, it really is a substantial step forward. So as you said, this is a lab-based method, what they've done at Lawrence Livermore. How do they scale it up? Well, obviously, the key thing that a lot of people are going to be interested in is, you know, does this mean that the realisation of fusion energy power on the grid is any more likely? And of course, that, that still is a long way away. So the laser within the National Ignition Facility was not built to produce a net energy output. It's not a naturally efficient way of converting electrical energy into laser light. It's more that it's a physics experiment designed to demonstrate this process of ignition, which amplifies the fusion energy yield. Obviously, what we want to do now is to see how far we can amplify the energy yield. The amount of energy that we're talking about is very significant in fusion terms, about one megajoule. But that, in reality, is what it takes to boil a kettle. (laughs) So the amount of energy we we would need to generate a power station would have to be hundreds or even thousand times larger from every pulse. And we'd have to develop a system that was able to do it either several times a second or several times a minute. And so really what we're looking for beyond this in terms of energy generation, at least, is for other laboratories or other startup companies that are now uh, arising to try and develop simpler, more robust, and and above all, cheaper ways in which you can realize the same ultra-high pressure conditions, but do it in a way which is more compatible with energy generation. But again, ignition is the only way in which we will ever achieve this large energy output. So this this, uh, demonstration is a key fundamental part of any inertial confinement fusion scene. And uh, other groups on the threshold of, of reaching ignition as well? So uh, the investment that's gone into the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and the the National Ignition Facility, it's taken uh, 10 years to build and 10 years to operate it before it's got to the level where we can can demonstrate these conditions. So that represents a huge investment by the Department of Energy. And actually, you know, I have to say that uh, in the early days where it didn't look like it was going to work, they stuck at it and they kept methodically working through and gradually improve the yield until now we're starting to see these spectacular results. But the National Ignition Facility is the only system that has been built up to the scale necessary in order to demonstrate ignition. There are many competing technologies out there, such as the direct drive laser system, uh, which is a different way of heating the fusion fuel with lasers, and magnetically driven uh, uh, systems as well. But they're all operating typically at lower scales, uh, not at the multi-billion dollar uh, size of facility necessary to demonstrate the ignition. As I was saying, uh, a lot of the work which we'll now concentrate is how to do it on the smaller scale and replicate these similar conditions in something more compact. But it is the most exciting news we've had in a while. So uh, there are 
good reasons to be a bit more hopeful at the moment. There are. And, you know, this is causing obviously a great deal of excitement within pe- the community of people who've been working towards this for the last 50 years since the, since the, uh, the concept was first published. The other thing that's causing a huge amount of excitement is, is just in terms of the fundamental physics that you can do with, with this object that's been created. You know, this is an extreme state of matter that is many orders of magnitude higher in pressure than anything we've ever formed in the laboratory before. It's a way to, that we can gaze into the, start, uh, the heart of stars or even to, into the processes that are going on in supernovae. We can look at things like um, how heavy elements are formed in the universe. We can even uh, do experiments in quantum physics that are related to the first few minutes of the, after the Big Bang, because that's what we're doing. As we increase the pressure, the temperature and the density of the plasma we create, we're moving backwards in time to, or ever closer uh, towards the early stages of the universe. And so it's not just a, a, a excitement about the energy uh, capability. It's also a great deal of excitement about what this offers as a platform for further physics experiments. It is very exciting, even though it's only produced enough power to boil a kettle. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks to Jeremy Chittenden for explaining what's going on. Um, now, Abby, are you excited by this? I'm really excited. Most yeah. of the previous big milestones of fusion have been using magnets to control the plasma. So it's brilliant to see the progress being made with this other method um, called inertial confinement fusion. So basically they take massive lasers and shine them on tiny pellets of fuel. For years, inertial confinement fusion was only possible with the huge budgets of national labs. So the laser that they've used at the National Ignition Facility is the biggest laser in the world. But in recent years, smaller startups have popped up looking into fusion using lasers. And I'm sure this will be great news for them, too. So how are the smaller startups going to do it if they don't have they don't have the biggest lasers in the world? They're only small startups. Do they have different methods to try to get to ignition? Yeah, so um, lots of the startups are using different methods. So they're using magnets or they're using, um, so that's the same way as the big experiments, the ones at um, ITER in France, Cullum in Oxfordshire and the China's East Reactor. A few startups are using lasers, but like you say, they don't have the same power as the National Ignition Facility. So a lot, what a lot of them are trying to do is recreate a kind of mix of the two. So using magnets and lasers at the same time. Right. And also you've been looking at how advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning can help. Yeah, so for magnetic confinement fusion, what you're trying to do is hold this incredibly hot and dense plasma suspended in the middle of a kind of donut shaped machine and you're not you can't let it touch the sides of the machine. So you have to try to keep it stable to let fusion happen. But when you confine it with magnets, all these weird things start happening um called instabilities and it can go wrong really easily. There are so many different parameters that the scientists can play with. Um And AI is helping researchers to understand both what's going on inside the reactors and also how to tweak the parameters in the best way. Okay, and the big question is, are we really still decades away from commercial fusion? (laughs) That is the big question. There are still lots of steps um, between where we are now and seeing a working fusion plant supplying electricity to the grid. But I do think with every step we get closer to milestones like ignition, it feels like the time we've got left to wait for fusion is getting smaller. 
Next up, it's our Frankenstein segment and news of a new kind of lab-grown human organ. It's quite common in labs all over the world to grow organoids in Petri dishes, small versions of mammalian and human organs such as kidneys, livers or parts of the intestine or retina. Yeah, they grow them up from different stem cells and the idea is it helps researchers study development and pathology and then test drugs, test new medicines on on these organoids. And as we've reported in the past, uh, brain organoids are being grown in the lab in this way. And, and these tend to be small clusters of human brain cells um, that form these sort of tiny mini brains about three millimetres wide. The news this week is that a team at Heinrich Heine University Dusseldorf in Germany have coaxed some of these brain organoids into forming rudimentary eyes, which <laughs> respond to light by sending signals to the rest of the brain tissue. Yeah, I can't, I can't get over this story. It's really extraordinary stuff. So the team added retinoic acid to these organoids when they were 20 days old and it stimulated the growth of optic cups, uh, a primitive lens and a retina and even a cornea. So they they actually grew these tiny eyes on the mini brains. It's just incredible really Um, and they're doing this to investigate uh, they hope inherited causes of eye disease and in future maybe to grow artificial retinas that could be used as transplants for people who are blind but right now it it does make me wonder if these eyes can see can they? (laughs) Yeah well I thought that as well I asked our reporter Claire Wilson about it and she said that Although the mini brains do have these eyes with lenses, we we can't know if the lens is forming an image on the retina. So it might not be able to see a focused image, but this mini brain would just know if the laboratory lights were turned on or off. That's still incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I say the brain would know if the lights were on or off, but we have no idea what the brain function is of these things. The, you know, they're only small pieces of tissue. And that's where these ethical questions start, because they do have neural connections and electrical activity like a, a human brain. You know, that's why they're interesting to researchers. So it's a really important question to ask if one day what will happen, you know, will they get sentient when they get a bit bigger? Yeah, I do find this a bit disturbing as as they're kind of a new unknown entity, aren't they? It's not like it's an animal that we've been studying for years. It's an entirely new thing. And as teams make bigger organoids, they may be able to start measuring sentience in these balls of tissue using techniques that we use now to measure brain activity in people who say are unable to communicate because they're minimally conscious. But my question with that really is, if we then start using these techniques to detect that there is sentience in these bigger balls of cells, isn't it already too late? We've already created a sentient brain in the lab. Yeah, um, exactly. We need to start thinking about this now. Um, I spoke to a neuroethicist about this, um, Andrea Lavassa. He works at the Centro Universitario Internazionale in Arezzo, Italy. He says he thinks people are already working on this in order to make a human brain organoid that has the beginnings of consciousness to understand how consciousness arises in humans. Surely that can't be ethical. Well, there's a technical challenge first, because after about 80 days, these things start to break apart because they don't have blood supplies to them. But I expect people are trying to work on getting them more stable. Um, They already have mini brains that are as developed as a few months old fetus, even though they're smaller. And there's big structural and functional differences. But still, you know, as you say, 
we really need to start thinking about this. Andrea was telling me about the pace of the research and it's going so fast that he says we can't exclude that in the future that these cerebral organoids, you know, might not grow up to have some sort of rudimentary form of sentience and if not consciousness. And what he said was if they were capable, imagine if they're capable of feeling pain or perceiving their environment, they might already be if they can sense the light. Is it then right to use them for scientific research? I think there have to be huge questions anytime you're causing something pain, whether that's an animal or some Frankenstein blob of tissue in the lab. Yeah, it's really fascinating and disturbing stuff. We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist. Yes, subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app. We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form. It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com slash app, download the issue and explore. Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers. We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out. And happy listening. And we're back. Next up, Mike, you've got a story that sort of complements the brain story we just heard about. Yes, slightly less sinister, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> so this is uh, this is the latest in the long-running saga of creating an artificial minimal cell. So this is a living cell that has had all but the most essential genes stripped out of it. Oh, right. This is the famous genome of um, the bacterium Mycoplasma mycoides. And so, yeah, as you say, it wasn't it? It was stripped down to the bare minimum of genes, and then that that genome was then used to make a synthetic life form. Yeah, absolutely right. So this was um, described by Craig Venter's team back in 2016. So what they did was they took the the genome of this bacterium and they damaged the genes one by one to see which ones it needed to grow and to divide to make new cells, and then they deleted all the ones that it could apparently cope without. And that took it down from 901 genes to start with to just 493. So they took out not quite, but almost half of the of the genes. The new thing now is that a team led by Jay Lennon at Indiana University has tried to see what happens to this cell in the long term. So what you might imagine is that because its genome only contains this set of completely essential genes, you'd sort of think that it would struggle to evolve and to change because if you make a change to one of these genes if you if a mutation occurs you'd think that would be harmful and just kill it but in fact that's not what happened over the course of 300 days it did evolve that's really cool that they could measure evolutionary change in just 300 days <laughs> it is a very cool experiment this um so the first thing that they found is that it mutated at the same rate as the the normal mycoplasma mycoides so the original one that wasn't Sort of that didn't have its genome stripped out. So it was changing rapidly. And they did some ballpark numbers on this. So if you imagine that this thing has a population size of 10 million, which for a bacterium, that's that's nothing. Uh, over the course of about 2000 generations, every single letter of the genome, every A, T, C and G on the DNA molecule would get changed over 250 times. So that's wow. loads of opportunity for evolution then? Yes, lots of opportunity uh, for this thing to change itself and to um, reshape its genome in all kinds of ways. Wow. And that is why bacteria are such fantastic model organisms to study and to play with for studying evolution. Yeah. So did these changes 
did they evolve properly, you know, adaptively? Did it improve its fitness? Yes, it did. Uh, it did so quite dramatically, in fact. So the way that the team tested this is they set up these kind of head-to-head contests where they would put uh, the newly evolved version of the cell in a container with another version, and they would just track them and see which one became more common in this little container. So you'd imagine if they were equally fit, if they were equally well able to live in this place, the numbers would stay 50-50, and they didn't. So it was like a gladiatorial. They made the the bacteria play hunger games in a, in the petri dish. <laughs> if, in the literal sense of hunger games, absolutely yeah. yes. Uh, so what they found was that first of all, the original minimal cell, the one that hadn't undergone three hundred days of evolution, that version of it was not well at all. So in head to head contests against the the wild type non-minimal cell it did really badly it had lost about 50 percent of its fitness so clearly stripping its genome had harmed it in some level but the version that had 300 days to evolve did much better it had recovered 80 percent of that lost fitness so it wasn't quite back to the standard of the original wild type but it was getting pretty close to it what I find so interesting about this is is trying to use this to understand evolution because of course we don't really think this isn't really what cells are ever like they're not normally completely stripped back um, ruthlessly to just the nuts and bolts of what's essential but does this tell us something about how life evolves or evolved right in the beginning I think it does yeah we just have to be a little bit careful about how we interpret it you're absolutely right that you're nothing like this probably ever would have evolved naturally because cells just aren't this ruthless with their genomes. The thing that this is telling us about is the evolutionary history of single-celled organisms like bacteria, which we have to remember were the only kind of life on Earth for billions of years. And they have quite small genomes compared to animals or plants like us. And what these experiments are suggesting is that evolution was always really, really effective at helping organisms adapt to new environments and change themselves, even very early in the history of life when genomes were smaller and simpler. So that there was a biologist called Leslie O'Gell who apparently said this very famous line, which I think applies here. He said, evolution is cleverer than you are. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, we thought that this animal, this organism wouldn't be able to evolve and change. Well, lo and behold, it did. <laughs> The other line that pops up to pops into mind is that uh, life finds a way. <laughs> Rory, you use that one all the time. <laughs> oh, do I? Well, let's hit that out then. It's very true, though. <laughs> I'm so boring. I use the same example. It's like, it's like evolve, that boring uncle. Evolve. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's check in quickly on climate news following the IPCC report last week. Yeah. I wanted to do this just to keep the pressure on in the lead up to the COP26 climate summit in November, meaning keep the pressure on world leaders generally to scale up their plans for carbon dioxide emissions cuts. Yes, we've got a piece in the magazine this week by Adam Vaughan looking at current projections for warming if governments follow through with their proposed emissions cuts. And the news isn't great, really. 2.7 degrees by the end of this century, which, of course, is well above the 1.5 and 2 degree goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, So where are we with the latest pledges from all the different countries? So most high income nations have upgraded their plans from the 2015 Paris uh, versions. Uh, The US has pledged a 50% cut in carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. The EU has committed to a 55% reduction over the same period. So that's great, but it means we don't expect any more action from these high-income countries. And what we need is the mid-income countries to get going. 
Uh, that's um, a bit worrying, really, isn't it? Because mm. we have some big emerging economies like Brazil and Indonesia. They're basically not moving or, or even going backwards on their emissions. Yeah. And I guess everyone is waiting to see if China will do something game changing. And on top of that, India was thought to be about to issue a net zero goal, but hasn't yet. Yeah, um, it's just like, let's watch this space and hopefully something will happen to really galvanise everyone and, and into making some big pledges, big cuts. I mean, even since we spoke last week about this, we've had a, a record high temperature in Europe, in Sicily with 48.8 degrees. And, you know, the wildfires in, in Northern California uh, are just horrendous. Whole towns have been burned up, thousands evacuated. The Dixie Fire, the biggest single wildfire in California history. There's about 100 other major wildfires across the Western United States, you know, because of this long drought and high temperatures. And all of this is on the back of a year of weather extremes. And, you know, in the light of all of this, ahead of COP26, UK government is considering giving the go ahead to a big new oil field in Scotland, Campo. Uh, and that's after the International Energy Agency said there can be no new oil and gas developments if we have a hope of keeping temperature rise within 1.5 degrees. Next up, it's COVID time and we're looking at the V word today, uh, ventilation, uh, which is a big issue right now with schools going back after the summer holidays. Yes, precisely. Um, many schools in Scotland return this week and the school year runs from mid-August in some parts of the US. Um, and the big question this year is, how do we stop the Delta variant sweeping through our kids? Yeah, it's a real concern, isn't it? That Because the Delta variant is so infectious and there are no plans at the moment in the UK to vaccinate the under-16s except in special circumstances. Yes, and there is a much wider question here, as we've covered in the podcast a few months ago. Is it responsible to let a new virus run rampant among our children, especially one known to cause chronic long COVID conditions in as many as maybe even 20% of young people? Personally, don't feel there's been any meaningful discussions of the morals of this. And I know a lot of parents are concerned, but on a more practical level, it's going ahead. Schools yeah. are starting, they're opening. So what can we do to try to stop the Delta variant from sweeping through classrooms? And the big answer here is ventilation. Yeah. So where are we with the concept of ventilation? Because initially the WHO said that COVID-19 is not an airborne disease. Yes, that of course has been overturned now. But you're right, back in March 2020, the WHO was categoric about this. Uh, for example, they tweeted that COVID-19 is mainly transmitted by droplets and not airborne. And for a long time, the UK government advice focused on, you remember, hands, face, space. And it was only much later that they added on almost as a by the way and let fresh air in. Um, and the result of this is that we've all become very distracted by what's known as hygiene theatre. So these are visible measures that probably make little difference to the virus or at least a lot less than things like ventilation and masks do. So perspex screens, for example, are often completely useless. And we now know that the virus can spread as aerosols. And, and so that's why um, if you're sitting on the other side of a screen from someone, but you're actually in an open room, they can just float over or around. Right. So these particles easily travel more than two metres 
Um, so sitting apart doesn't make as much of a difference if, if you're sat together for a long time. And they can stay airborne for really long periods of time. Um, so essentially, that all adds up to without adequate ventilation, virus particles accumulate in an indoor space and basically create a hot box for infection. And we know that poor ventilation is linked to super spreading. It creates the ideal conditions for dosing everyone present with a large number of viral particles. Yeah, so it's not great if you're on a, an aircraft or a train and you can't open the windows. But is it as simple as opening windows then? Yeah, so um, it can be. So um, some planes actually seem to be quite good. Um, some trains are okay, others less so. And it all comes down to the ventilation systems that are in each of them. So certainly if you're dealing with a simple setup like your own home and you're having visitors in, it's a very good idea to open all your windows, encourage a through draft from one side of your home to the other. That's the sort of simple example. But crowded spaces like schools and offices aren't that simple at all because we've really neglected air quality in the past and so we're just not set up for good ventilation now so many buildings have their windows painted shut or sealed off that includes a lot of schools and instead uh, particularly in offices we've installed air conditioning and a minority of air conditioning is probably okay. Some buildings have systems that cool the air, but they also bring in fresh air at the same time. But many, many buildings just have recirculating units, which cool the air to make you feel okay, but they just keep recirculating the same air repeatedly. And that's just asking for trouble when it comes to infection. So look, what can we do to protect ourselves at work and at, and at school? So I think the, the, the big thing here is really finally understanding aerosols and the risk they pose. Um, so they can travel long distances indoors. Uh, they remain in the air for a long time. So any work or school situation where you're sitting indoors with a group of people talking for any period of time has the potential to become a super spreading event. The risk is reduced if windows are open and everyone wears a mask. But you have to remember that sitting two metres apart isn't going to make a difference if you're spending the whole day together. And it's actually very stressful, though, if we make this about personal responsibility, because um, opening a window has differing effects depending on uh, where that window is, the, the size of the room, who's in the room. And there are all of these kinds of variables that are outside of our control. So really, it should be on schools, workplaces, authorities to make sure that um, there are going to be professional assessments of air quality and ventilation systems and to take action to unseal windows, improve aircon systems and so on. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Abby Beale and Mike Marshall. And thanks to you for listening. As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. That link again is newscientist.com slash pod20. That's it. Thanks again. Spread the word and see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.